Hey, everybody, welcome to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, our guest is Bill McKibben, who is an environmentalist, a skier, an author, and journalist who has written extensively on the impact of climate change. He is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar at Middlebury College and leader of the climate campaign group 350.org. Bill has authored numerous books about the environment, including his first book, The End of Nature, which was published in 1989, and it was one of the first books on climate change for the general public. Bill has also been awarded the Gandhi Peace Award, and Foreign Policy Magazine named Bill to its inaugural list of the 100 most important global thinkers. I, like many others, have been reading Bill's work for years now, and in this conversation, I admit... I had two very specific things that I wanted to talk to Bill about, and that is the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as the climate conference that was held in Egypt near the end of 2022. But in addition to those two specific things, I thought this would be a great opportunity to zoom out a bit and talk to Bill both about his background, growing up, his work life, what he was reading, and to get a better sense of how he found himself working on these environmental issues. And then, of course, you know, since we were already talking, I thought it would be fitting to go ahead and get his broader sense of where we are when it comes to environmental issues and topics and some of the most important things that Bill thinks we can be doing on an individual level and on a collective level. Now, just before we get to my conversation with Bill, I do want to remind you about our upcoming Blister Summit that will be held right here in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado, and that is taking place February 12th through the 16th. We have a ton of information about the summit on our website, and we'll include a link to that information in the show notes of this episode. And what I can tell you, folks, is first of all, I actually just got back from the mountain today, skiing all weekend. The mountain is phenomenal shape. It's going off. You're going to have a good time. The mountain is set up. The conversations are going to be great. And we are going to be having at least one panel session that will very much be touching on some of the things that Bill and I will be talking about today. So check that out, the Blister Summit in Crested Butte. That's February 12th through the 16th. And there's a lot more information to be found on our website. And we'll include a link to that information in the show notes of this episode. And now let's get to my conversation with Bill McKibben. Here we go. Well, Bill, how are you today and where are you today? <laughs> I'm in the Green Mountains of Vermont, and I'm pretty good. I'd be a lot better if we had some snow on the ground. Mm. Uh, I did get out for a ski, but it was on the two-kilometer loop of man-made snow. That's all that's left after two or three big warm rainstorms up here on the East Coast. So 
save for that, um, doing just fine. Gotcha. And where are things for you? I mean, we're just here in the new year, but what do your responsibilities and involvements look like here in the early part of 2023? Well, I actually think 2023 is going to be and could be an interesting year. You know, I've been working on this climate stuff for a very long time. I wrote the first book about what we now call climate change, what we then called the greenhouse effect back in 1989. And for most of that 30 years, 30 plus years, I guess, the work has been um, mostly about trying to build enough awareness and consensus that we could begin to get some kind of concerted action. Finally, last summer, we had the U.S. Congress pass the first climate bill that there's ever been. 34 years after NASA scientist Jim Hansen first told them that the planet was heating, they finally got around to doing something. And that something travels under the moniker of the Inflation Reduction Act. And it comes with $400 billion at least in spending on EV chargers and heat pumps and uh, solar panels and all the other things that we're going to need to start really start this clean energy transition. And so now one of the jobs for those of us who volunteer in all these sort of movements is to, along with kind of exhortation and demonstration, we move to execution and deployment as well, trying to figure out how we can quickly get 140 million homes in America uh, to be changing out their furnaces and their stoves and their cars and and so on and so forth. And that money will be a help. Hopefully it will jumpstart that clean energy transition. I definitely want to pick your brain more on the Inflation Reduction Act. But before we go there, I think it would be really interesting to have you just tell us more about your own background, you know, and really going way back in terms of your education and your sports life, maybe some of the books and authors and thinkers that were important to you that led you to be one of the very first people writing about things like climate change? Sure. Well, I grew up in New England mostly, and I grew up writing, doing journalism, started working for the local newspaper when I was 14 or 15. Wow. <laughs> uh, made 25 cents a column inch covering basketball games and soccer games and then school board meetings and so on and so forth. And then went to college where all I did was work on the newspaper. We had a six day a week newspaper and I covered city hall and the community and so on. And by the time I got out of college, I had no other skills at all, uh, save uh, journalism. Happily, uh, the New Yorker magazine asked me to come work there. And a week after I graduated college, that's where I began as a staff writer writing a section called The Talk of the Town, uh, short reporting essays from around New York City. And it was pretty much a dream job, just really getting to know New York. And I stayed there for five years. And in that time, started doing the work that led to this book, The End of Nature. 
But for a variety of reasons, I ended up leaving the city and moving to the Adirondack Mountains uh, of upstate New York. People don't always in the rest of the country know that New York is home to the great wilderness of the American East. But the Adirondacks is a very special place. Uh, it's The Adirondack Park is roughly the size of Glacier, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, and Yosemite combined. Um, and uh, six million acres. Uh, and it, with only about 100,000 people living in and around it. And so it's a magnificent wilderness. And it was there that I finished writing that book, which bears a lot of the imprint of my deep love of wildness and wild places. And and it was also there that I really uh, discovered my one true vice in the world, which is cross-country skiing. <laughs> so in all the decades since my year has at some way or another been oriented around trying to be home for those 90 or 100 days at the peak of the winter season so that I could uh, get out there and, and glide. And it won't be, um, it won't be lost on your listeners that uh, there's probably no act, no certainly no sporting activity more completely endangered by <laughs> climate change than cross-country skiing. And it may explain some of the passion that I have brought to the topic over the years. There's definitely more important reasons to be worried about our destruction of the planet and many people whose lives, not their pastimes, are endangered. But nonetheless, uh, it's one of the reasons I've stuck with it. And at some point in that saga, having written that book, I, you know, I, I kept writing about climate change, global warming, and I kept speaking about it and organizing seminars and things because I was a writer. And I think writers are trained to believe that it's important to win the argument. And that if we won the argument about climate change, then our leaders would start doing the right thing. And why not? It took me too long, really, 10 or more years, to figure out that we were winning this argument, that science was robust and obvious. We were just losing the fight because the other side in this fight, the fossil fuel industry, um, had so much money and hence so much power that they could continue with their business model even after they'd lost this argument. Uh, and that's when I began the kind of work that's probably dominated my life in the last two decades, volunteer work, but hard work nonetheless, of organizing and building mass movements around climate change. With seven college students up here at Middlebury College in Vermont, I founded something called 350.org that became the first global grassroots climate movement. We've organized 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. Uh, and we launched, we, you know, sort of spearheaded the opposition to the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, and we launched this massive fossil fuel divestment campaign that's become the biggest anti-corporate campaign of its kind in history. And, and in recent years, as I've gotten old, uh, I've founded a, a new organization, Third Act, that um, organizes people like me over the age of 60 for 
action on democracy and climate change. So I've stayed busy um, and I've continued to <laughs> continued to keep skiing too. I did take one year out in the middle of all of this when I got just worn out from failing to save the world uh, to write a book called Long Distance uh, that was about training at a kind of uh, elite level for uh, ski racing. Not that I ever got fast, but uh, I wanted people to kind of understand what that felt like and tell the stories of the people who were engaged in it and things. And so that was a great pleasure and a great diversion. And I, I, I'm not at all sure that I would have been able to keep kind of daily contemplating the, the end of the world if I hadn't had the great escape of the, the woods uh, right out my door all that time. Okay, I have about 87 follow-up <laughs> questions from all of that. But I, I think the first one is, you got a job writing for a newspaper at the age of 14? Please explain, and is that something that would even be a possibility nowadays? Um, it would be harder nowadays because there's so many fewer local newspapers. Remember, there was not that long ago mm. when every small town and suburb had its own weekly or bi-weekly newspaper. And that's where people kind of began their yeah. journalism training. I was a little bit precocious, perhaps, but my dad was a newspaper man. And uh, uh, and among other things, I loved sports, but I wasn't particularly good team athlete. Um, and so this was a good way to, you know, uh, be involved with uh, high school sports and things. And, um, uh, and I just loved it. I mean, it was... Um, it was something I was good at from the start. Uh, and, and I'm grateful all the time because it means that I've been writing so long that the blank page holds no terrors for me. You know, I, I, I don't get intimidated. I, writer's block doesn't really seem to be a problem. You also mentioned that, I guess you said your first job was writing for the talk of the town for the New Yorker a section that continues mm -hmm. on to this day. So I'd call that a pretty impressive first gig. Yes. I mean, that was, a, you know, sort of one of those lucky things that, uh, and, 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 and it was a quite anachronistic job in those days. Uh, the New Yorker was at the end of, towards the end of its first great run. Uh, the man who hired me, mm. William Sean, was the great editor of the 20th century. Mm. And, uh, but he was quite old, and I, I was by many years the youngest person on the staff. <laughs> so, so I, I think he looked around one day and decided that he needed some younger people, and um, found the newspaper work I was doing in college, and called me up and said, "You want to come work?" And of course, the first time he called, I just thought it was someone playing a prank on me. So I told him to go <laughs> um, stuff himself, and. Uh, hung up, but he called back six months later or so. And this time, uh, happily, I was smart enough to uh, uh, come down to New York and talk with him. And, and uh, <laughs> we became fast friends. And uh, I actually left the New Yorker because, well, because a big conglomerate bought it and wanted Mr. Shine, wanted him out. And when they fired him, I quit just because, and I'm, you know, in many ways, it was lucky I did because it let me move to the mountains and think about a lot of different things. But now, of course, The New Yorker is back in a wonderful place under its remarkable editor, David Remnick. And so I'm happily 
writing mm-hmm. regularly for them again all the time. I, my writing life in that way has come kind of full circle. So we've talked a good bit about writing. Can we go back to that part of the question about reading and authors? And while I guess it's possible to imagine someone becoming sort of a prolific writer without a deep discipline of reading, that feels more hypothetical than probable to me. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how disciplined my reading is, but it's been constant um, and wide-ranging. But there were a few writers in my 20s who were really important to me and helped me see the world in new ways. Uh, Probably first and foremost among them, Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer and essayist, but also Ed Abbey, the great Western desert writer, Gary Snyder, the remarkable poet, uh, my great friend Terry Tempest Williams, um, writers like Rebecca Solnit, Naomi Klein, who have been super important to me, uh, among contemporaries, among people who were who I got to know, those are some of the people who've been truly, truly crucial for me. And so, in terms of your thinking about environmental issues, you've laid out a narrative where it was after the talk of the town, right? And when you did move to the to the mountains, that is when you really started thinking about these things or these issues maybe started taking hold for you. So you weren't necessarily as a as a kid, that 14-year-old kid writing for the newspaper, these weren't already concerns or topics that you were reading about at that stage of your life. This was after this was after the New Yorker. Yeah, not so much. I mean, my father grew up in the West uh, 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 and was a great, he grew up in Washington State back when it was a pretty wild and woolly place. And, um, and he was, you know, an early member of the Sierra Club back when it was a hiking club. And so I, we'd grown up always, you know, in a household that thought about the wild and that valued conservation, conservationists and so on. But that hadn't been my focus. I was really at the in the early days of the New Yorker more interested in kind of urban issues. I lived for a while on the streets as a homeless person in order to write about it. Um, ran a homeless shelter in the basement of my church. Uh, I met my wife because she was working on homelessness issues in New York too at the same time. Um, and it, it really was with the reading about the early science of climate change uh, that I that it, it, I, I sort of began to dawn on me that this was going to be the most important story in the history of the world. And somebody better get to work telling it. Well, I think that is all some very helpful context to then maybe bring us back to the present. A lot was made of the Inflation Reduction Act, of 2022. And I would like to hear you just say a bit more uh, from your point of view, how important do you see the IRA? How good should we feel about this? What are some of the things that maybe give you pause or that you wish went a bit further? Give us your sense of this, this act. Sure. Well, first thing to be said was 
uh, thank God that young people, um, especially this group called the Sunrise Movement, uh, pushed and pushed hard. It was their work uh, for a Green New Deal uh, that really got the ball rolling here. And they convinced uh, people like Bernie Sanders to take them very seriously and adopt that idea. And when Bernie Sanders came very close to winning the presidential nomination in 2020, um, they were then able, with his help, to convince the Biden administration or the Biden campaign to sign on in one way or another. Now, they didn't, Biden didn't sign on to the size of a deal that they wanted, but he began to push forward in good faith with this Build Back Better bill. You'll recall the saga of Joe Manchin of West Virginia was the 50th vote that had to get be won over, and he dithered and for 18 months, mostly at the behest of the fossil fuel industry. He's taken more of their money than anybody else in Washington, which is a hard contest to win, but he won it. Um, and so he was an obstacle and a roadblock at every turn. But I think in the end, we'd done a good enough job of making people understand just how crucial this issue was that even Joe Manchin didn't want that one thing that people would remember him for to be blocking the only real effort we've ever made as a country to try and do something about the worst problem we've ever faced. So he eventually agreed to this much reduced in size bill. And he also took away all the, the sticks, all the laws that would have forced utilities, say, to use more renewable energy, left behind only the carrots, the tax credits and other monetary incentives to get people and corporations to start using clean energy. So it is a very pale shadow of what it probably should be and what was originally envisioned. That said, it's way more than the U.S. has ever done and more than pretty much any country's ever done or committed to this process. And so now we have to try and make it work as best we can. And uh, I mean, the good news is that we're at a moment when it's technically possible to imagine rapid change. The engineers have dropped the cost of renewable energy 90% in the last decade. We live on a planet where the cheapest way to generate power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. And that opens up enormous possibilities. Um, you know, I mean, really the possibility that it opens up is that human beings for the first time in 700,000 years might be able to break the habit of setting things on fire. Uh, served us well for a long time. You know, the campfire let us cook food, which was a big innovation, and it let us move north and south from the equator. And uh, the anthropologists think that a few hundred thousand years of gathering around the fire at night was enough to kind of turn us into the social creatures that we are. But, uh, and then with the Industrial Revolution, being able to burn coal and oil and gas made us rich. It really built modernity. But of course, you know, we're past the point where it's a good and useful thing, and now to the point where it's a very harmful one. We know that uh, 9 million people a year, about one death in five on this planet, comes from people just breathing the 
byproducts of that fossil fuel combustion. We know that um, tyrants like Vladimir Putin are empowered by uh, oil and gas. So whether it's Putin or the king of Saudi Arabia or the Koch brothers, you know, that control over those scarce and valuable resources gives them way too much power. And we know above all that we're destroying the climate on which we depend and very, very rapidly. So, uh, you know, the IRA is the first step, uh, but it it's going to take extraordinary amount of organizing and movement building to let it work at the speed that it needs to work. Remember that scientists have told us we need to cut emissions in half by 2030 if we're to have a hope of meeting the temperature targets that we set in Paris. So that means we really have to go to work fast. And on that note, what are your thoughts on that? Does this strike you as we are already at a position where chances are we're not going to get there by 2030, or that's just an unproductive way to look at it. You know, we need to be, because of the significance of the issue, pressing as hard as ever, and perhaps now hoping that there are certain breakthroughs that help us get to that 2030 mark? Yeah, I mean... I doubt we'll cut emissions in half by 2030, but I think we can get a long ways towards there. And every bit helps. Um, you know, there's no cutoff at which the world ends, although there are cutoffs at which the poles melt and so on. And we're flirting with those now. Um, so fast is better than slow in every way. At, at this point, you know, the fact that renewable energy is so cheap means that. 75 years from now, 50 years from now, we'll run the planet on sun and wind. It's essentially free. But if it takes us anything like 50 years to get there, the planet we run on sun and wind will be a broken planet. So our job is to catalyze this reaction to make it speed up. To do that in this country, and remember, we have to do it in every country for this to work, but to do it in this country uh, means that we're going to have to build real movements city by city, town by town, to quickly allow the spread of renewable energy. So for instance, um, probably some of your listeners have uh, you know, priced uh, solar panels for the roof. And their expense is still pretty expensive, more than they need to be. They come in at about four cents a kilowatt hour. But the panels themselves are only about one cent a kilowatt hour or so. Uh, the, the real cost at the moment is the cost of going out and finding customers, you know, sending salesmen door to door, you know, so on and so forth. So what people are doing increasingly is setting up neighborhood and community by community projects. You go into a neighborhood and you enlist, you find a hundred people who want to put solar panels on their roof. And that allows you then to go and ask for bids from different contractors. And those bids can be much, much lower because you've already done the work of finding the customers. Not only that, now they can bring all their trucks to the same neighborhood at the same time. And you can drive that cost down enough to allow things to accelerate dramatically. That's the kind of 
a lot of the kind of movement work that we're going to be doing over the next while. And you say that's the kind of work we're going to be doing. Is that through 350.org? I, yeah, I think 350 will be working hard on it. And I know that we will at Third Act, which is where I spend most of my time now. Um, and But it's also, it's going to take, you know, all kinds of groups, uh, environmental groups and consumer groups and uh, civic groups and really everybody who cares about the future coming together to make this happen. Um, and, and, you know, if you go into a city, you're going to have to get the universities engaged. You're going to have to get the sports teams engaged. You're going to have to get everybody uh, uh, working to publicize and make easy these kind of transitions. I feel like this is a pretty important thing to think through. And man, I can't imagine thinking through this with anyone in a better position than you to do so. But there has been a very big question and perhaps a tension between this notion of individual responsibility, individual behavior, and kind of looking at macro, huge infrastructure. And just hearing you talk now, what you're talking about is mobilizing groups. And you were just literally talking about an example of mobilizing a neighborhood, right? Where costs of solar installation could be brought down in a local neighborhood. And I may well be very much behind on this type of thinking, but I like that idea that we need to continue to think about the mobilization of groups, whether that is a local neighborhood, whether that is groups at a city or state or national level. But what are your thoughts on this? I guess this the, the large spectrum of personal individual behavior and responsibility on the one hand, and then the sort of almost impossible to really think about macro huge infrastructure levels. And is this group think, sorry for lack of a better term, is that a bit of a middle ground to help kind of bridge these two ends of the spectrum? Yes, it may well be. We, we, we obviously need big projects um, and those are important. I mean, we, we're in a hole. We need a lot of clean energy. And so we need big wind turbines and big solar farms and transmission lines to help get them around and all of that. But we also need change, deep change inside the 140 million homes in America. You know, every one of them has a furnace and a, a stove, and most of them have a car in the garage or outside on the street. Um, and those things all need to change. The estimate is there's about a billion machines in America that need to change. And some of the money to do that is available now because of that Inflation Reduction Act. But that doesn't mean that it's going to happen automatically or easily, especially because the fossil fuel industry continues to try and delay it all. And it's why we have to continue organizing and protesting and pushing them hard. And, and we definitely continue to do that. But it also means that we, you know, that we need to be coordinating lots of people. I think that the two or three or four percent of people who are really engaged in this work or are already understand and are 
probably they're the ones who bought the first EVs or the first induction cooktops or the heat pumps for their home or whatever it is. But that's not ever going to be most people. And so we need lots of ways to bring make it easy for most people to participate in this necessary and in some ways quite beautiful uh, revolution. And so that's what a lot of the work's going to be about. And I do think that it's thinking about it in community by community is a, a good way of doing it. You know, America in most of my lifetime has thought about things in very individual terms. Uh, that was the kind of Reagan revolution of 1980. Stop thinking about society. Uh, as his friend Margaret Thatcher in Britain said, there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women. Uh, I think that's been a ruinous doctrine in a lot of ways. Uh, and I don't think it's made us very happy because we're socially evolved primates who actually like to <laughs> do things with each other. But um, um, I, I, I know that we have to be able to break away to some degree from that hyper-individualist mindset if we're going to make change on the scale that we need to now. So I guess I had used the phrase groupthink. The better phrase for now would be community think, uh, probably a more productive uh, version of what you're laying out here, um, community think. And community action. Yeah, I'd say that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not impossible. There's about 10,000 cities and towns in the United States. No, about, I'm sorry, about 20,000 cities and towns in the United States. So if you had five people working in each of them, you could get a lot done at the city council, the town board, the whatever it was. And that's, you know, means 100,000 people. That's not an impossible number of uh, volunteers to assemble to try and push hard. Now, I, I should say that I don't think any of this is going to be easy because there's lots of players who aren't working in good faith here. The fossil fuel industry has for decades done everything it can to slow down and stop action on climate change because they understand that it interferes with their business model. Their business model is essentially, we dig things up and set them on fire. And if we're moving to a world that relies, you know, not on energy from hell, but energy from heaven uh, that, you know, relies on the fact that the good Lord was kind enough to hang a large ball of burning gas 90 million miles away, then that messes with their business plan and they'll do anything they can to stop it, especially purchase politicians by the barrel. And that's what they've done. And that's why we've had so little action for so long. At the moment, much of that fight centers on the role of banks and other financial institutions in propping up the fossil fuel industry. The four big American banks, Chase, City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, are also the four largest lenders to the fossil fuel industry in the world. Uh, they're, you know, they take our money and then they turn around and hand it over to build new pipelines or, you know, gas terminals or frack wells or whatever it is. And that's why we're standing up trying to stand up hard to that. Uh, on March 21st, 32123, for those who like palindromes, 
we're having a uh, big national day of action. And we'll be outside and maybe inside the branches of those banks across the country trying to make the point that we cannot be doing this anymore. Um, there'll be people cutting up their credit cards and people closing their accounts and people demonstrating and people going to jail uh, because we need these guys to cut it out. It's a big deal. If you had $125,000 in the bank, and a lot of people my age do because that's their retirement savings, that $125,000, it turns out, uh, lent out by those banks for um, these various fossil fuel projects produces more carbon in a year than all the cooking and flying and heating and driving and cooling that the average American does. Uh, we don't really think about it, but it's like going out and buying three Escalades and putting them in the driveway and just turning them on and letting them run all year and them idle for, you know, 12 months. Um, it's insane. And it needs and should end. And, and so we're working hard on that at the same time that we're working hard on uh, helping people to figure out how to take advantage of these new potentials. Bill, I want you to repeat this. You're saying that if there's someone who's got their you know, retirement savings in a bank, you use the number, I think, $125,000. Mm. Just repeat that again, because that's a rather eye-opening... Because the bank is lending that out for the fossil fuel industry in order to do various projects, uh, it produces more carbon than all the daily activities of an average American life. Um, these numbers are actually fairly new. They came out the, for the first time this year. And if you think they're stunning for individual people, they also calculated them for various corporations, especially those big tech companies that are have a lot of cash and are also committed to net zero carbon emissions. Well, it turns out that if you're at Google, your carbon emissions go up 111%. Once you calculate in what your cash on hand produces, uh, Netflix's, Netflix's cash uh, sitting in the bank being lent out for fossil fuel projects produces more carbon than all everybody on earth sitting there and screaming, you know, Tiger King and British baking and whatever every night of the year. Uh, Amazon produces more carbon from its cash in the bank than it does from all its warehouses and delivery vans. Almost certainly, your city or town produces more carbon from the just from the you know cash it collects in taxes, say, and puts in the bank for a few months um, than it does from running its subways and buses and fire trucks and police cars. Uh, this is the huge source of carbon that we've got here. And the good news is it would be the easiest one to control because there's like four big <laughs> sources of it. And if we could, you know, convince them to change, then change would happen fast. It's not easy. I mean, these guys are, they have more money, you know, more money than God. Um, it's the capital in capitalism, but it's a definable target set and one that we can go after. I want to get your thoughts on another event that happened at the end of 2022, and this was the climate conference in Egypt. You were there, 
And I would like to just get a kind of firsthand report from you on what you were seeing and hearing in Egypt. Sure. I've been to many of these cops. This was 26th or I've lost track of these annual climate conferences. This one was distinctive. It was the first time really that we'd held one in a police state. Uh, Egypt is a, is a authoritarian government. And all the people like me, if we were Egyptians, would be locked away in jail. And so we were doing our best to use the occasion to try and draw attention to some of those people rotting away in Egyptian jails. Um, the big thing that activists were asking for at the conference was to set up a fund for compensation for the losses and damage that the poor countries of the world have already suffered from climate change. And this is only fair. Um, you know, the iron law of global warming is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and the faster you get hit. So a country like Pakistan, which just dealt with the most devastating flooding since Noah, I mean, 33 million people displaced. Uh, Pakistan has put way less than 1% of all the carbon into the atmosphere. The 4% of human beings who live in the U.S. have put about 25% of carbon in the air. So, you know, we owe them. And it took a lot of work to get this fund established. Uh, truthfully, I think it'll be very difficult to get governments like ours to put much money in it to pay people back. You know, we haven't paid reparations to the descendants of African-American slaves. So it doesn't strike me as likely that the, you know, Republican controlled Congress is going to quickly want to pay reparations to African nations. But I'm glad that at least we've got the vehicle now to do it and more attention brought to it. Um, other than that, I think it was a fairly discouraging meeting. Um, there wasn't big new announcements and breakthroughs of countries wanting to get on board. Much of the attention of the world's been distracted for a couple of years by COVID, by Ukraine, and by the economic fallout from both of them that have produced the kind of strange economy we're living in around the world right now. Um, and that's bad because we're at a crux moment on, on climate change. Uh, so I, I, my guess is that the UN process has to some degree played itself out and that the real action is going to be in individual countries and among banks and corporations and things for the next few years. But, uh, you know, it was moving to see, uh, this was the first African climate conference and very powerful to see the witness from people across the continent about the troubles that, that they're facing. The entire continent of Africa has produced about 2% of all the carbon in the air, but it's the continent being damaged most dramatically by climate change at this point. So in terms of the immediate future, which we'll kind of for now define just as the next 12 to 24 months You've named some of this, but give us a bit of a recap on what you view to be the most important either technological breakthroughs that you're seeing or developments or things that we can be doing collectively 
to to move the needle the most? Sure. I think that we've seen the important technological breakthroughs that we're going to see for a while. And those really involve the rapid driving down of the price of renewable energy and the things that make use of it. And that's been the work of the last decade. And as I say, it's been really impressive. And now we're seeing it really start to roll out. So for you know most of us, the face of this transition will be um, machines. It'll be EVs. And they're going to be many, many, many more of them on the market, even the next few months. Uh, you know, happily, the days when uh, electric vehicles were synonymous with Tesla are over, which is good because the so people have perhaps observed the uh, CEO of Tesla is now behaving in bizarre and unpredictable fashion. Um, it's going to matter a lot less because everybody else is now starting to leapfrog that technology. I've been driving for years a Kia EV, and I think it's a terrific car, and there's many, many more like it coming now. The next on that list of important appliances is the heat pump, uh, you know, which uses electricity to take the latent heat in the air outside and either heat or cool your home, depending on the season. They're almost magical technology. Uh, probably the kind of third in the trinity of appliances is the induction cooktop for your uh, uh, kitchen. Most Americans still use gas uh, in their kitchens. And as it turns out, this is a bad idea, not only for climate reasons, but also we had a study just in the last uh, few weeks, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases of childhood asthma in America are attributed to the fact that people, kids live in houses with, in essence, a campfire in the kitchen. Um, the idea that we need an open fire to cook our food is uh, a holdover from, <laughs> from uh, Pleistocene days, um, and we don't anymore because, because well, I, I mean, I can't completely explain how it works, but I'm the cook in our house, and I use these, I've used this in, induction cooktop for years, and it's brilliant. Uh, it works easily and just better than gas or anything else. Um, so it, it, I mean, the curious part is that m most of the big changes that people make at the moment don't really involve extraordinary sacrifice. Hopefully, people will you know, make some changes that are a little more personal, like, for instance, eating a lot lower on the food chain or figuring out that they don't need to be flying off around the world all the time just to, because they want it to be a little warmer than wherever they are at the moment. Um, um, but the sort of core changes that need to happen are just different ways of doing things. And I think people who have, say, an EV or an e-bike will testify that it's as good a vehicle as they've ever owned. Back to heat pumps for a second. Why is it that I feel like I have heard and read and been more excited about things like solar panels than heat pumps? Uh, I don't know, but they're coming on fast <laughs> and they're wonderful. I, I ran a little campaign with Third Act this past year. It was launched the day after the Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. 
called Heat Pumps for Peace and Freedom, arguing that we should be using the Defense Production Act in this country to be producing lots of heat pumps to send off to Europe so that they would be hostage to Vladimir Putin's efforts to turn off the gas tap. And within 90 days, Biden had signed that authorization under the Defense Production Act. Um, uh, I think they're quite sexy. Um, I love ours. Maybe that I love it in part because I spent almost all my life getting up every night to stoke the fire in the wood stove. And as much as I've, you know, there's a certain kind of romance and beauty to that. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a, it's awful nice to be able to program this efficient electric appliance to do the job too. Let's talk about nuclear for a second. We had, we had, by the way, this great and interesting news about fusion power uh, in the latter part of the year. Um, it's still a long ways. I, I did some writing about it for the New Yorker. It's still a long ways from being commercializable <laughs> if it's ever going to be. And the problem that it has is that it has to contend now with the fact that solar and wind power are really cheap. And so that may make it somewhat more difficult. But I think that it's possible to imagine 50 years from now that we'll be taking down solar panels and wind turbines and putting up fusion reactors in their place if we can get the price down and things. But but that doesn't, <laughs> we better put up those solar panels and wind turbines for a generation or two, or else the planet that we run on fusion is, you know, not going to feature ice at the poles or you know, coral reefs in between or big coastal cities or anything else. Um, so it's a, you know, it's good news, but it doesn't change the imperative of the moment, which is to use the off the shelf technology that we have. And, and the economics of this are a big part of it. Um, uh, I think if people have a nuclear power plant where they are operating, they'd probably be smart to leave it running because uh, it's bought and paid for. But I doubt that nuclear power plants of the kind we're using at the moment are going to be a big part of the answer here just because they're really expensive. Um, there's other problems too that people know about. And some of them were highlighted this year when we were you know, watching tank battles going on in the parking lots of nuclear power plants in the Ukraine. But uh, none of those risks compare with the risk that comes from climate change. So uh, I, you know, I, 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 I think that, um, that people should probably uh, rein in some of their fears around nuclear power, but not to the extent that they don't pay attention to the fact that it's very expensive and that we, given how much change we have to make, we better figure out the cheapest ways to be doing it. You've talked a bit about the need even in terms of these new technologies, to continue to make moves toward what is available now. And it strikes me that this is a really, really important thing to think through and, and discuss. You know, I think with respect to electric vehicles, I feel like I'm reading more articles than ever that are raising questions about lithium and where we're getting lithium, cobalt, and where we're getting cobalt. And, you know, these things 
somewhat understandably can get people to say, you know, yeah, like, man, EVs aren't the solution. This doesn't look right. Speak to speak to that a bit. There's no free lunch here. Um, but there's lunches that are more expensive <laughs> than others and more damaging. Um, so there are environmental problems that come with mining lithium and cobalt, and we should do them as well as we can. Those pale in comparison with the environmental problems that come from burning coal and gas and oil. Um, you know, those are existential. Those are leading, driving the sixth great extinction crisis. And they pale even in comparison to just the direct human damage. Remember, I told you that 9 million people a year are dying from breathing the combustion byproducts of, of fossil fuel. Um, that's, you know, many orders of magnitude higher than the number of people who will ever even be engaged in mining lithium or cobalt. In fact, if you look at it in the biggest sense, um, it's pretty clear that we're going to dramatically reduce mining in general. Uh, uh, the best estimate is by about 80% if we move towards a renewable energy planet. Uh, and if you think about it for a little while, the reason becomes clear. Like, yes, you have to mine lithium or cobalt to build those batteries or those wind turbines, but you only have to mine it once, uh, you know, because once you've done it and built the turbine or the battery, there it stands for uh, 25, 30 years, generating power every time the wind blows or the sun comes up above the horizon. That's pretty different from mining coal. What happens when you do that? Well, you set it on fire. <laughs> then you have to go get some more the next day. A good way to picture this, a statistic that's really lodged in my mind since I did the work to track it down last year, is that about 40% of all the ship traffic in the world is just boats carrying coal and oil and gas back and forth to be burned. Um, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and it really gives you some sense of how much of a kind of dematerialization uh, we might be able to have uh, if we move towards a renewable energy economy. Uh, because, you know, the the sun and the wind do the transporting. You don't need a ship anymore. <laughs> the sun pleasantly moves its way around the world. And of course, the other advantage there is that that now this these truly important commodities are locally available. I mean, one of the problems, as I was saying before with fossil fuel, is that the people who control the few big deposits of it get way too much power. Uh, but Vladimir Putin can't interdict the wind and the king of Saudi Arabia can't turn off the sun. Uh, instead, you know, uh, wherever we are, we'll be able to have some increased level of control over our destiny, which I think is a good thing. So on the criticisms about technologies and emerging technologies and the fact that there are not perfect solutions that carry zero downside at the moment, it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that we need to acknowledge that. And yet, if that fact that some of the near-term solutions in front of us 
aren't without any downside, that can't be room to say, well, then we're just going to sit and wait until that perfect solution becomes available. Yeah. I mean, if we do that, um, <laughs> we'll finish the job of melting the North Pole and the South Pole. Uh, you know, the oceans will rise many meters and uh, hundreds of millions, the UN estimates uh, uh, billions of people will be forced from their homes in the biggest you know, migration and displacement by far in human history. Uh, a lot of that's already happening and we're beginning to see the effects. I mean, you know, many hundreds of millions of Americans now live in places where wildfire is a scourge or where their cities are sometimes filled with smoke, uh, where flooding on a scale we've never seen before has become routine on and on and on. And if it's bad here, it's far worse in other places. I mean, look, this is the biggest emergency we've ever faced. And when you're in an emergency, you know, uh, you, you try not to make it worse, obviously, by whatever you're doing, but you don't, uh, you, you know, you have to move with dispatch to do what you can to stabilize things. How real or significant do you find this point that I'm making that people that some of the folks who say, yeah, these new, this talk of electric vehicles and the rest, you all need to recognize these downsides that come with the current technology where it is today. Do you feel the weight of that? Or do you think that some of that is, um, I'm trying to think about even best way to phrase this. From where you sit, do you see that as real friction in the system or as a significant obstacle? Or are you seeing more people that are like, no, we understand that, but we're still making moves to sort of do the incremental changes to get us to the next step for the reasons that you've articulated well? I think it's serious friction, and I think it's often deployed by the fossil fuel industry in a very cynical fashion uh, to, you know, try and keep people from making the change that we need to make. Um, um, but also think that it's deployed, you, you know, that people have, um, that there's plenty of people, for instance, who don't want to look at solar panels or wind turbines. And because, you know, we've learned to love the look of the world around us. And that's a good thing. You know. But we obviously need a new aesthetic for the emergency that we're in. And so I, you know, I will say for me, I've come to think that wind turbines are quite beautiful. You know, the breeze made visible. Um, I, and I actually, you know, my yard is filled with solar panels on, you know, standing on steel stocks, which are, you know, they're not as beautiful as as the meadow. Uh, there's something something beautiful about the fact that, you know, people are taking responsibility for their own energy, not subcontracting it out to drowning people in Pakistan or blowing up the mountains of West Virginia for coal or, or whatever it is. So I, I, that is one thing I think we really are going to have to come to terms with and learn to like the look of. Well, I want to let you get going, Bill. And before we do, though, I think to give people 
just a bit of a recap from your point of view for where you would recommend that the people listening to this, where should we be placing or best placing our time and energy to to really try to make a difference here? Well, I mean, people should be taking individual action around their homes, and that's now possible to do, but it shouldn't be, I think, people's main emphasis uh, because we still need to be working to change this system to make large-scale change possible. The most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to make change happen. So for young people under 30, you know, the sunrise movement's a great place to go. For people over the age of 60, tell your grandparents about third act and they'll love getting to work with people their own age for progressive change. There's the Sierra Club. There's local groups all over the country. There's all kinds of places you can find to kind of join in and and put an oar in. And that's really what we need now. Finally, Bill, for people that have listened to this conversation and maybe haven't interacted with your own work, what one or two books or articles would you be most inclined to direct people to <laughs> to kind of get started? Um, for articles, people can either just Google my name and The New Yorker, and they'll get an archive of the pieces that I've been working on, or I do a, a, a column on Substack called The Crucial Years that sort of keeps people up to date. Um, you know, I, I, I've written 20 books, I guess, at this point. Um, um, (laughs) the end of nature, sadly, from 1989 is still altogether accurate and lays out both the, um, practical and the philosophical horrors that we're encountering now. I, I, I wish I'd been proved wrong and I'm very sorry that time has proved me right. Well, more work to do for sure, but Bill, We're certainly grateful for the work that you've been doing along these lines for a number of decades now. You know, so it's been an honor to speak with you for that body of work that you've put together and your time and energy. But I also really appreciate you talking today and giving us a sense of the landscape and and where you see things heading. So, well, it's been a real privilege for me. And, you know, I'll I'll, I'll just add that the other thing to remember is that um, we're the one creature capable of bearing witness to all the beauty that's around us, even even in a world that's not um, as intact as it once was. And so part of our job is to get out there into the woods or the mountains or the ocean or whatever it is as often as we can and just appreciate what remains. And somehow that becomes motive power for doing the work that we then have to do to save what we can. So that's that's where I come down anyway. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing people in jail or seeing people on the trails or seeing people in all the places in between. <laughs> all right, Bill. Well, thank you so much. Keep on keeping on. Absolutely. Take good care. Thank you. 
Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks so much to Bill for this conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And from our entire team here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week over on all of our other Blister podcasts. You can find those in the show notes to this episode as well. All right, everybody, take care.